You're listening to Center Church Podcast. At Center Church, we strive to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. You're about to hear a message from our pastor, Matthew Edwards. But before you do, we want to invite you to visit our website at centercharlotte.org. There you can sign up for our weekly emails and receive new content as we release it. Secondly, we want to invite you to visit our pastor's blog at matthewedwards.cc. And finally, if this podcast ministered to you in any way, go ahead and subscribe and you'll be the first to know when we release more content in the future. Thanks for listening in and be blessed. Heavenly Father, I have a message prepared for everyone here tonight, but I thank you, Lord, that my message is not what's most important. I thank you, Lord, what is most important is what you would have for everyone. And as always, Lord, there is no distance in the anointing. So, Father, right now I'm asking, uh, I'm asking, first of all, that you would give me success. Secondly, I'm asking that everyone would hear exactly what you would have for them right where they're at, right where they're at. They would hear exactly what you would have for them. Um, And Lord, I thank you that even in the midst of this crisis, even in the midst of everything that's going on, that Psalm 91 is our truth. Psalm 91 is our foundation. Psalm 91 is what you have for us. And so right now, Lord, we rest in Psalm 91, the promises that you made us in Psalm 91, that you are still protecting us. You are still watching over us and that you'll never stop. So right now, Lord, we thank you for being who only you could be in our lives. And I thank you uh, for this moment to be able to connect with everyone right here in Facebook, on Facebook, uh, and on the podcast as well. So we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet. Well, let's dive into it. If you have your Bible, you can actually open up to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. And tonight, normally I would try to start off with uh, communion, which I actually have right here. So, uh, if you got the email, <laughs> uh, we are going to take communion every time we meet, um, even, even though it's on Facebook, we're still going to take communion because that's what we do as a church. We do it all the time. Uh, in fact, tonight, guess what? We are going to talk about communion. So, uh, let's, let's do this. Open up to Exodus chapter seven, <clears throat> Exodus chapter seven. And I want to remind you we're, we're, we're asking everyone to read, um, Revelation, I'm sorry, not Revelation, read Psalm 91 every single day uh, just to reestablish yourself in the truth that God is here and he wants to protect you. So again, just want to encourage you, go back and read Psalm 91 every single day. We're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 7. Now, Exodus chapter 7, let me just tell you a little bit of what's going on. Moses uh, has been sent by God to be the deliverer for the Israelites. Right now, they're all in captivity. They're, um, they're slaves to the Egyptians. And in their bondage, the Bible says that they cried out to God. They cried out to the Lord, Lord, uh, we're, we're tired of being in this bondage. In fact, let me correct myself. They didn't actually cry out to God. The Bible says that they cried out because of the oppression. They cried out to God because of the problems that they were having. And I'm sorry, I keep saying they cried out to God <clears throat> because it's instinct for me to say that. But the reality is they didn't cry out to God. They cried out because of the oppression. They cried out because of the problem. They were groaning because of all the, 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 uh, the, how heavy their taskmasters were coming on them, how heavy their, their owners and their masters were coming down on them because they were slaves. And so in their slavery, they were crying out because they were tired of being beaten down and going through everything they went through. And the Bible says when they cried out, not to God, but when they cried out, God heard their groaning and God remembered the covenant that he made with their great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. And so God sent Moses the deliverer. So you have this beautiful picture of God that shows that he, whether you cry out to him or not, and I say this carefully, I'm not saying this for everybody on earth. I'm saying this for believers. When you cry out, 
even if you don't cry out to him, when you cry out, God hears it. And God remembers the covenant that he made with his son Jesus at the cross for all of us. That every time something comes against you, he would protect you. That every time someone comes against you, he will make sure that he is your shield and he is your, uh, like we talked about a couple weeks, or two last week, he is your shield and exceedingly abundant supply. I mean, every time something happens to you, when you cry out, God hears it. God remembers the covenant with Jesus and God moves. So again, it's one of those beautiful pictures that, you know, I wish every believer would run to the Lord. But if the truth was known, most believers don't. They only run to God when something bad happens. And when something bad happens, they usually don't run to God either. You know, they try to figure it out on their own. But we have a promise from our Heavenly Father that even when you, even when you cry out, before you can say, Father, help me, he heard your cry and he had a response. So you have that beautiful picture right here in Exodus so anyways, what happens is God sends Moses and he tells Moses, I want you to be the one to go to my people. I want you to be the one to go to the Egyptians and tell them to let my people go. And Moses tells God, he says, Lord, you know, I'm not the one, you know, I'm not the mouthpiece, blah, blah, blah. You can read the rest of the story for yourself. And you come to chapter seven. So when we come to chapter seven, verse one, it says, so the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh and Aaron, your brother shall be your prophet. Now watch this. He says, you shall speak all that I command you. And Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send his children, to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and hum and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Now let's keep going. Um, read down to verse 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt. And bring out the children of Israel from among them. Now, I want to point out right here what God is saying is really interesting because what the Lord is looking at, he's looking at the fact that I'm going to have to stretch my hand out against Egypt because they're going to refuse to let my people go. And when they refuse, I'm going to stretch out my hand, but it's going to be a hand of judgment in that sense. In other words, there's going to be 10 judgments that are going to come on Egypt because they refuse to let my people go. Now, that was done to get them out. But I want you to see the point he says in verse five, he says, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel. Now, what you see is God is saying, it's not so much of, it's all about getting you out. It is about getting you out. He doesn't, he don't get, don't, let's not get that confused. The priority is to get you out of the problem. That's the goal. And he will get you out of the problem. But in getting you out the problem, he says, it's not just getting them out. It's getting them out in a way that the Egyptians know, I am the Lord. Of all the gods that they served in Egypt at that time, of all the things that, that, that had their attention in that moment, God is saying, when I pull my people out, I'm going to do it in a way that the world knows, I am the Lord. I am the real one. I'm the only one. Now, you can go back and look at the plagues and how the people responded. But my point in saying all that is to say this. Right now, even in this crisis, don't just ask God for the bare minimum. I hate when people ask God for the bare minimum. You know, we only want to ask God, oh, Lord, please don't let the worst case scenario happen. Oh, Lord, please don't let the worst case scenario happen over here or over there or even for my family. Lord, don't let it continue spreading. I'm going to challenge you to ask God for more. I want to challenge you to ask God to not just save you, but to save you in a way that when you are saved, that people around you will know only God could have been the one that did what he did, uh, that, that could have caused what happened for you to actually happen at all. 
Only God could have done it if God was with you. So knowing that, again, it's one of those moments where it's like, again, God is saying, look, don't just ask me for the minimum. Ask me to do it with style. Ask me to do it in a way that people will know I'm on your side. So I want to challenge you even now. Again, we have a lot more to cover. But I want to challenge you now. Like, don't just ask God in the midst of this crisis. Oh, Lord, please don't let my family get it. Yeah, that's the reality. We don't want anyone's family to get it. But in the process, believe God for more. Believe God that even in the midst of what's going on, that even my neighbors, my coworkers, my family will look at me and look at my family and know that the Lord is for us. He's not against us. So again, I just think that's a really awesome uh, little tidbit there. We can have a whole preaching moment on that, but I won't go old school on you. I love you too much. Now, it's really interesting. I love to draw the parallel between the old and the new. Uh, one of the beauties of, of looking at the old um, in fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says it like this, and this is Bible study, so we're going to kind of quote some verses, and you can go back and look them up for yourself. Uh, but anyways, one of the cool things that Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this, that we with unveiled faces, as we behold him, are transformed by the Holy Spirit. My favorite verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But what's really cool about that whole segment is this, in that context, what he says is this, uh, before you come to 18, I think it's like verse, I want to say 10, 11, or 12. He says this, whenever the Old Testament is read, there's a veil that covers men's hearts. All right? Now, every time you read the Old Testament, there's a veil that covers your heart. Well, the purpose of a veil, again, looking at the type and the shadow, when you look at the Old Testament, God said, my people can't be, um, they, they can't see me. If they see me, they'll die. If I'm in their presence, they'll die. So let's do this. Put a veil between me and them. And that veil will separate me from them. That veil, in a sense, will protect them, but it will also keep them away from me. So what you see is the purpose of a veil is to keep someone from something that's great. Now, I'm saying it that way on purpose, to keep them from something that's great. Uh, when you look at marriage, the way marriage was instituted, when um, Jacob went to marry his wife, Rebecca, on the day of the marriage, her face was veiled. Again, to keep him from something beautiful, to keep him from something that's great. Her face was veiled. That's why we still have that tradition today, not so much anymore, but there used to be a very, very common tradition of the of the of the bride wearing the veil. On the wedding day, she veils her face from her husband, and he doesn't get to unveil it until they've consummated their marriage. So what you see again is right here we have this idea of a veil. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, When you read the Old Testament, there's a veil that covers your heart. In other words, your heart is the part of you that's saying, show me more life, show me more of Jesus, show me more of him. But in the process, there's a veil every time you read the Old Testament. So I always tell people in our church, be careful when you're reading the Old Testament. Or let me say it like this, be careful when you're listening to someone that only preaches the Old Testament. All right? We don't just read the Old Testament to read it. We read it through the lens of the Apostle Paul. And the reason being is this, Paul is our apostle. He's the apostle to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. So since that's the case, again, what do we do? We read it through the lens of the new covenant. So again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, there's a veil that covers men's hearts. Now, how do we remove the veil? Well, he says in that same chapter, I'm sorry, in the very next verse, only in Christ Jesus is that veil removed. You want to remove the veil to see the truth? Put Jesus into the picture. Now, I say that to say this, and I want to be very, really careful one of the things I grew to hate in the early days, uh, when, when the Lord, when I really felt like the call of God was heavy on me uh, as a youth leader at the church where I was serving, one of the things I, I grew to hate is life lessons. Uh, 
Now, I say that on, well, on purpose. This just the terminology that I gave it, life lessons. You've ever been to a church service, I'm sure most of you have, or you've heard someone. You ever been to a church service where the preaching has really nothing to do with Jesus, but everything about what to do? Now, I say this all the time. So for our own church people, I won't go down that rabbit trail. I say it all the time. You can hear just about any podcast sermon and hear me go off on a rant about that. But I'll give you a quick example for those who don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, and again, this is all relative to what we're talking about here. There's a story of Jacob in the Bible. Jacob, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph. And uh, we know him as Joseph in the code of meaning colors. Anyways, there's a story of Joseph. The Bible says that God gave him a dream. And the next morning he woke up and he told his brothers in the dream, we were all cutting sheaves of wheat. And when we put the wheat down, all of a sudden your sheaves of wheat bowed down to mine. So they got angry at him. Who do you think you are, Joseph? Blah, blah, blah. You know, they got mad at him. They were jealous of his dream. Well, the next night he has another dream. And in that dream, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything bows down to him. Well, he gets up the next morning and he tells his parents and his brothers. And his father looks at him in and says, are we supposed to bow down to you? Again, whole family is jealous. Now, if God is the one who gives the dream, what God was doing was he was telling him the time is coming when your family will be bowing down to you. All right. But he's giving him the reality in a dream. Now, knowing that he should have probably kept the dream to himself. Now, the way it's been taught is this. Joseph should have kept that dream to himself. Joseph talked too much. He had this amazing dream or vision that God gave him a revelation God gave him and his uh, revelation was too big for what they could handle. What His call on his life was too big for uh, what they could take. Um, gosh, I wish I could remember. His 10 by 12 was bigger than their 4 by 8 frame. There you go. You know what I'm saying? What God had for him was much bigger than what they could comprehend. So he should have kept it to himself. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that story preached and taught and shared and just that segment of story alone. The five reasons or the five ways you know someone is not ready to hear your vision or the reason why people leave you in your life is because they can't hold what God has called you to do. Or what he's, again, all that stuff preaches good, but at the end of the day, it doesn't do anything to help you. If you really want to be transformed, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, how are you transformed? Only when the veil is removed and you see Jesus in the equation. Now, that was a nice little rabbit trail, but welcome to Bible study. <laughs> so that said, what does that have to do with this story? We want to make sure that we remove the veil and we see Jesus in it. Now, when you remove the veil, what do you see? God says, I'm going to stretch out my hand. All Egypt will know when I stretch out my hand, all right? When I stretch out my hand, they will know that I am the Lord. Now, this is Old Testament, but we have another moment in history where God, almost 1,500 years later, when God stretched out his hand again, but this time he did it, not in judgment against the Egyptians, but this time he did it to save all of us. At the cross, 1,500 years later, Jesus would stretch out his hands for both of us. And right there now, all the powers that be, everyone who stood at the cross looked at Jesus and said, surely this was the Son of God. I mean, come on, you have this beautiful moment where, again, mirror from the old showing us the new, the shadow of the old showing us the substance in the new, where Jesus would stretch out his hands and save all of us so that the world may know he is the Lord so that the world may know he is the way, the truth, and life, the only one who can save us. And in him, we have wholeness, completion, perfect peace. So again, I just, I love the picture here. And I know we've been here for almost 13 plus minutes. So for that, I apologize. But turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, we're going to pick up verse 12. 
Let's go ahead and tell you, now God has already executed the 10 plagues that came down on Egypt. I'm sorry, he's executed nine of the 10 plagues that came down on Egypt. And he's about to execute number 10, which is the death of the firstborn on the night of the Passover. Excuse me. Again, I apologize. It's the death of the firstborn on the night of the Passover. So he's getting ready to execute that. And what he does is this. He says, look, what's coming down, I want to make sure that my people are safe. Now, in order for me to save you, what I need you to do is put blood on your doorpost. No, but not just any blood. So he gives them specific instructions in chapter 11, I think it is. Um, no, it's in chapter 12. God gives them specific instructions. He says, you're to take a perfect lamb. You're to kill that lamb. All right. And what you're to do is to eat the roasted lamb that night. And then you're to take the blood of that lamb. And I want you to put it on the doorpost and on the lintel. All right. Top, left, and right. Now, in the Hebrew, it's not doorpost. Like we perceive it to be like a doorpost. Literally, they would have put the letter Tav, um, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet on their doorpost. The letter Tav, if you know anything about Hebrew, is actually, it looks more like an X today, but the older way it would have looked would have been more standing upright, which would have made it almost look like a T, which would have been a picture of a cross. But that's cool stuff for another time and another day. Anyways, you're to put the blood on the doorpost of your house, of your home. And then he says this, when the angel of death comes on that night, he says it like this, when I see the blood, I will pass over. Now, when I was a kid... That always bothered me. Um, in fact, let's read it together. You're already there. Let's just read it. We're here. Look at this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. The Lord says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Then look at verse 13. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, when I was a kid and I heard this story and when I read it, the impression I always got was this. God is going through the land and he's killing every firstborn son, every firstborn child. Doesn't matter. He's killing every single one. And I had this image of God that was kind of marred with, you know, on one hand, God is just brutal, just like slaughtering these firstborn kids. And on the other hand, I had this image of God. He's trying to save us. So he says, put blood on the doorpost. But I never could really reconcile the two. And so anyways, as I got a little older and I got serious about church, got serious about the word of God and wanted to know more, this is one of the first things I wanted to go look up and find. I can't remember the guy who wrote the book, uh, but he wrote it about the Jewish holidays. And the first one he mentions is Passover. Well, as I started break, as he starts breaking down Passover, I started taking a special, you know, special close attention to how he broke down what was going on. And anyways, the guy goes on to say this. I think it was uh, Perry Stone, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was Perry Stone. He's phenomenal. Love Perry Stone's stuff. Anyways, Perry Stone made a comment. He said this, that the word Passover is very much misinterpreted or very much mistranslated. And the reason why is this. The word Passover comes from the Hebrew word Pesach, which is how we translate to the English Passover. But the interesting thing about Passover is this. It alludes to something more along the lines of someone spreading their wings or something spreading its wings over you. Now, when we hear Passover, we interpret it as, I see the blood, I pass over, I go to the next house, and if there's no blood, the firstborn dies, we move on. But the reality is this, when you understand what Passover or Pesach actually means, the idea is more so, when I see the blood, I will cover this house, and death will have to go to the next one. 
Now, when you understand it that way, you realize that right here, it's not so much God saying, and again, you can read uh, the book of Acts when he talks about it. You can go back and read the rest of this chapter because there's almost a transfer. God is saying, I will go through and I will pass over. But then he says it in another place, I will send the angel of death is going out. So in a sense, or, or let me say it like this for the sake of Bible study and for the sake of time, the angel of death is the one that's doing the killing. But God says, because death is coming, when I see blood on your doorpost, when death comes, I'll spread my wings over your house. All right. And when death sees that I'm spreading my wings, death must pass over. Now, the only prerequisite to have death move on or leave you, so to speak, or let me say it this way, to have God spread his wings over you to protect you is to have blood on the doorpost of the house. Now, there was two instructions. Eat the meat. Put the blood on the doorpost. But the only one that saved you from the plague of death coming was blood on the doorpost, not eating the meat. Now, I submit to you, eating the meat has its own purpose. And we're not here to talk about that tonight. But tonight, I want to talk about the part of the blood because the blood is what's really interesting to me. When you look at blood, the first time blood is mentioned is uh, in the book of Genesis. Cain killed his brother Abel. And when he killed his brother Abel, he went and hid the body. And God comes to Cain later. And he says, Cain, where's your brother Abel? And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he says, don't you know that your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground? Now, knowing that, again, the first time the word blood is mentioned in the Bible, the law of first mention is when God says his blood cries out to me. That tells us that blood has a voice. That tells us that to God, God hears that blood has a voice and that blood speaks and God hears. So right here, when Cain killed his brother, that blood from his brother Abel was speaking to God. Now, in the book of Hebrews, he goes on to say this, the blood of Abel cried one thing to God, but the blood of Jesus Christ, a better thing to God. When God came to Cain, he said this, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Then he goes on to exact revenge against Cain for what he did to Abel. So what does that tell us about Abel's blood? It tells us that when Abel's blood was spilled, and it should never have been, that Abel's blood was saying, give me revenge, avenge me from what's happened. But when you look at the blood of Jesus, it cries out better things. What does that mean? His blood isn't saying, give me uh, vengeance or give me or avenge me for what's been done. His blood is crying out, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. His blood is crying out, Father, protect them because they don't know what's coming. His blood is crying out, Father, give them more favor. Make sure that every blessing of the righteous finds them. Make sure that every ounce of protection for the righteous finds them because they belong to me. But what about what happened to him? You see, it was our sin that put Jesus at the cross. It wasn't one simple mistake. It was a lifetime of all our sin combined put Jesus at the cross. And at the cross, Jesus should not have died. Sorry, Jesus should never have been at the cross. That was supposed to be my place. That was supposed to be your place at the cross. And yet, Jesus took our sin at the cross. And it was our sin that crucified him there. It was our sin that put him there. And yet, after the cross, his blood cries out, Father, forgive Matthew, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And right there in that moment, what do we see? The blood of Jesus cries out better things. His blood cries out, God, give them more favor. God bless them on, in spite of them. Now, again, I love this, this whole depiction of blood because, again, blood speaks to God. Now, right here, in the in, back in Exodus, <laughs> sorry, in Bible study, we get to take the nice trails. Anyways, back here in Exodus, what do we see? God is saying, put the blood, I'll pass over. Put the blood, 
I will pass over. When the blood is there, what about eating the lamb? Yes, that's important. And I'll, I'll talk about that another time. It speaks to your physical condition. But right here, if you don't want death to come in, make sure that there is blood on your doorpost. So let's take, for example, that there's a family inside the inside one of the houses. Or let's say you and me were in one of the houses, okay? Or I'll use my wife. Let's, use, let's do that. I'll pick on her for a little bit here. <laughs> let's say me and Christina and my son Parker were in the house. Parker's my only son, so he qualifies as my firstborn. All right, so we're in the house, and in that night, Moses comes and tells us, Matthew, put blood on your doorpost. Okay, so we put blood on our doorpost, just like everyone else does. I can guarantee you Christina's going to come out and say, Matthew, is that enough blood? Should you put blood on the back door as well? Okay, let's put blood on the back door. Okay, but what about the windows? Should we put blood on the windows as well? Before the night is over, we will have blood all over the house. The whole house will be covered in blood from top to bottom. Every door in the house will have blood in it. Because we're just going to take every necessary precaution, whether, just, just to be safe, right? Just to be safe. And yet, it's not how much blood is on the door. It's just that the blood is on the door. Now, let me say it this way. Let's say that night me and Christina, you know, were bundled up together with our son. And we hear the, the effects of death going around us. We hear, an, you know, an Egyptian crying out and screaming because their son is dead. A few houses down, we hear another Egyptian screaming because their, their son is dead. All of a sudden, we hear the, the next door neighbor cry out because their son is dead. And we know that it's getting closer and closer. And all of a sudden, in that moment, we are absolutely terrified. We don't believe that the blood is powerful enough to save us. We don't believe that the blood will keep death out. We don't believe what Moses said is true. Everyone else is dying around us. We're absolutely terrified. So we grab each other. We hold Parker. We hold each other. We're crying out, please, not us. And we hear death on the other side of the house. And we hear death going down the streets. And, and, and all of a sudden, a few hours later, the sun breaks. And guess what? There's a knock on the door. Moses says, it's time. We're leaving. Now, I said all that to say this. Whether there was faith in the power of the blood does not determine whether or not the blood will work. Now, again, I want to say that because I don't, I don't want to confuse anyone or lose anyone. Whether we put our faith in the effective power, effectiveness of the blood does not determine whether or not death will pass over. And I want to be really careful about that. Growing up in a word of faith environment, we were taught if we don't believe God every single step of the way, then how can God be good to us every single step of the way? You have to have faith every single step of the way. And what happened was we started using faith as a means to condemn God's people. And all the while, that wasn't giving us more faith. That was robbing us of the little bit of faith that we all had in the beginning. But I submit to you that the power of the blood of Jesus is strong enough to keep death at bay 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm telling you in the midst of this crisis, if you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if you believe that Jesus is the son of God, I'm telling you that the blood of Jesus covers you and your household. And I'm telling you that God's promise for you is that his blood is powerful enough to keep death at bay. You know, on the way to the cross, Jesus shed his blood, I think it's seven different times or five times. I think it's seven different times. And every time he shed his blood seven times, Something happens for all of us. I submit to you during our quarantine, you've got the time. Go back and look at the seven different places Jesus shed his blood. It's a powerful uh, message in there. I love that message. But I submit to you that his blood was so powerful in order to save us from our sin. It didn't need all his blood. He just needed one drop. One drop was powerful enough to save all of us from hell. And yet he shed his blood seven different times to save us from seven different areas. 
it's a beautiful picture, but I just wanted to point that out again. What you see here is that the blood is what saved them. Not their fear, not their preparation, not shaking, holding hands. Oh God, please, please. No, it was the blood that saved them. How they acted inside the house was absolutely irrelevant. Because when God says, I'm going to protect you because of the blood, God is bound to his word to protect you because of the blood. Let's keep going because we can get stuck here all night. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is the whole chapter is about um, the Holy Communion, which we are big believers in our church. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to point out when it comes to the Holy Communion, Jesus said this. In fact, look at verse 24. Paul, I'm sorry, look at 23. Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, In the same manner or in the same exact way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, when you read it in the Gospels, there's a uh, there's some more uh, details that added in. Jesus says in one of the Gospels, I can't remember which, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood, which is shed for the remission of your sin. Now, we as Christians like to add another piece on there, which is shed for the remission of sin until your next sin. But that's not what Jesus said at all. What Jesus said was, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood, which is shed so that all your sin will be remitted or more modern term, all your sin will be permanently removed. Period. He doesn't add anything to it. We love to add things to it, but he doesn't add anything to it. So again, that's Jesus's um, take on the Holy Communion. But it was misunderstood. And to be honest, more people run from communion than people actually embrace it. So let's see what Paul says. Paul says in verse 30, he says, for this reason, in fact, um, let's read 27 down. I didn't want to, but let's just read 27 down to verse 30. In fact, Look at verse 30 before we read 27. Verse 30 says, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or many die. Now that's what we're coming to. Now if you want to know the secret, which I believe our church knows it, but again, the purpose of this is not to pretend like no one knows this. I want to pretend like our church does know it, and we are firmly rooted and established in this truth. But at the same time, let's keep building on what we know. All right. And if you're hearing this for the first time, just grab hold with everything you can. Go to the Center Church podcast and hear as many messages on communion as you can. We have plenty. We have plenty. Speaking of which, Pastor Samuel has an awesome message about communion on the Center Church podcast. So shout out to Pastor Samuel. Go check that out. Anyways, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's pick up at verse 27. Paul says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, that terrifies people, right? Verse 28, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, right there, whoa, Matthew, we should examine ourselves. Okay, but everything in context, right? Verse 29, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, wait, notice, he drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Verse 30, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Now, in context, that word judgment, we drink judgment to ourselves. That judgment is the judgment that's already on the world. And the reason why I say that is this. The purpose of the blood is to remove sin, right? Now, I'm not going to talk about the body just yet, but the purpose of the blood is to remove sin. That's the purpose. 
Now, when you understand that that is the purpose of the blood, if you are not convinced that all your sin has been removed by the blood, you are going to condemn yourself or allow yourself to continue feeling condemned. And as long as you feel guilty for more sin, you're going to be doomed to repeat that sin. And as long as you feel guilty for that sin, you're going to continue to embrace judgment that's already in the world. In other words, when people are getting sick around you, you're going to say, well, I hope I don't get sick, but chances are I probably will. When, when, when things are going on around you that shouldn't be, well, these things happen in threes, you know, the superstition. These things happen in sixes or fives, or I don't know what the terminology is, but these, thing hap these things happen in multiples, so I'm going to be the next one. Or you, you find yourself putting yourself or inserting yourself into bad things happening for no reason. Just for the simple fact that you don't perceive yourself to be free from sin. Now, I know this is kind of one of those things like Matthew, you know, but I mean, you got to understand this. Now, when he says in verse 30, for this reason, and we'll talk about the body some other time. When he says, for this reason, many are weak and sick and many die before their time. What he's saying is this, because they don't discern the body and read it for yourself, because they don't discern the body the purpose of the body of Jesus, which was to bring us healing, which was to heal you from every sickness and every disease, because they don't understand the body, many are weak, many are sick, and many are dying. They, they're falling asleep and they don't have to. Right here, he's saying, hey, but if you can reverse it, and when you take communion, discern the body of Jesus Christ. I mean, really, see that that bread is the body of Jesus Christ broken for you, and by his stripes, you are healed. If you can hold that bread and see that, then instead of being weak, you will be strong. Instead of being sick, you will be healthy. Instead of dying, guess what? You will live a long and beautiful life. Psalm 91. With long life, he will satisfy you and show you more of Jesus, or I'm sorry, salvation. So you see all that again. Now, when you understand the purpose of the, of the body, I say it like this. The body of Christ brings healing, but the blood keeps sickness or death, I should say, at bay. Or let's say it like this. It keeps it away. Now, I'm saying that very, not, not so much loosely, but I'm saying that very intentionally especially for our church. And we can't say this for every everybody out there, but I'm saying this for our church or anyone who has the faith to believe it. I'm telling you, the body of Christ heals you from every sickness and disease, but the blood of Christ keeps death away. That's why, hey, in the Old Testament, God says, let, um, I'm two more together. He says this, what I have joined together, let no man, old King James, tear asunder. In other words, what God has joined together, don't let anyone separate. Some people take this and they say, well, you know, let's just let's just take the drink or, or let's just take the bread. Or you have some people, let's just take both of them together. You don't take them together. What he has separated, keep separate. But what he has joined together, don't try to separate. My point in saying all that is this. You need both. You need the bread to say, hey, this is my faith being executed. I'm sorry, this is my faith that I'm using to believe that by his stripes I was healed. And you need the cup to remind yourself, hey, all my sin has been removed. I am qualified for what the bread will bring to me in my life. The blood keeps death away. Now, I want you to look at this real quick in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be closing here really soon. I, I, I promise. I know we're already 44 minutes into this video. We're going to be closing very, very soon. Bear with me. I only have uh, two places, and the last place is going to be really, really short. So that I promise you. Look at this in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me turn there myself. Now, in Hebrews chapter 10, 
we'll pick up at verse 26. I only wanted to read 28 and 29. But I don't want anyone to read the context and get anything misunderstood. This is Bible study. We take our time and we want to make sure everyone is on the same page. So here we are. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. And uh, I'm a believer that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. There is no author mentioned, but I believe that because every time Paul wrote to the Jews, and um, I'll say it like this. Thank you, Pastor Samuel, for telling me this. Um, <laughs> I'm stealing this directly from you, sir. Um, every time Paul reached out to the Jews, it never ended well. He was not the apostle to the Jews, so when he tried to do it, it never ended well. So I believe that Paul said himself in another book, I love the Jews so much in Romans. He said, I love them so much. I wish I could be cut off from God that they all might be brought in. But that's not possible. So what do you see is in Hebrews, all of a sudden a mysterious author writes the book of Hebrews and sounds exactly like the Apostle Paul. What do you think? So anyways, I'm a believer that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. So I, I just like to say Paul wrote it. So there we go. So anyways, Paul says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, he says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Now, this is my verse, my go-to verse for people who come against the grace of God. People who say, well, there's more to God than grace, or you only want to preach grace. Stop preaching grace so much. Uh, why has it always got to be grace? Yeah, grace is good, but we need some other stuff too. This is my go-to verse. Now, I say that to say this. I want you to understand this. I don't want you to hear this verse and be afraid or terrified for any reason. Verse 26, one more time. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This sinning willfully, keep in mind, this book was written to the Jews. Okay? And in that it was written to the Jews of that time, what they had done was this. Many of the Jews were coming under persecution for believing that Jesus was the Messiah. So as they were believing that Jesus was the Messiah, they had stopped making sacrifices. They had stopped doing a lot of the Jewish customary things to do. And as they stopped doing them, they came under heavier persecution. So the Apostle Paul saw they're being persecuted for believing in Jesus. And many of them, because of the persecution, they're going back to the old ways. They're going back to sacrificing. They're going back to the customary things to stay pure. And the problem with that is Paul is saying, if they sin willfully, meaning what? If you leave Jesus and go back to your old way of thinking, what does he say? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So look, if you leave Jesus because you think you can... Uh, you can justify yourself. You can make yourself good enough before God. If you leave Jesus, there is no sacrifice for sin. And then he says this, the only thing that waits for you, verse 27, is a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law, the Ten Commandments, they die without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Again, speaking to the Jews. Then he comes to this in verse 29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will that person be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Now, what does that mean? You saw what Jesus was doing. You heard what Jesus was doing. You see the truth in the scripture, and yet you've still chosen to walk away. Do you really think that God will not hold you accountable for his own son? Then you come to the next verse. Counted the what? I'm sorry, where are we at? 
trampled the son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was by which you were made sanctified. I'm sorry, by which you were made holy, a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. Now again, I talked about insulted the spirit of grace, but notice what he says right here: a common thing. He counted the blood of Christ. A common thing. He counted the blood that sanctified him, the blood that made him righteous, the blood that set him apart and made him holy, the blood that makes you holy. You counted it a common thing. Now, I'm going to bring this to a close in just a minute here. He says, do you really think that you will escape God's anger if you count the blood of Christ as a common thing? Now, I want you to understand blood has uh, that meaning that we talked about earlier. It cries out to God. God hears blood. So whenever they sacrificed to God, they heard the blood of the sacrifice crying out to God, forgive them, forgive them, or I'm not forgive them because that blood couldn't forgive, atone them, Father, cover them or cover their sins, atone their sins, a cover it, don't remove it because the blood of bulls and goats could never remove sin, but it could cover sin. So sin was constantly being covered. It was constantly being covered. And so what he says is this, that blood, that common blood that could cover your sins, don't dare think for a moment that the blood of Jesus is just like the blood of the bulls and goats that you sacrificed before. Don't think that that blood was just like those bulls and goats, that your sin is covered. I mean, come on, if you think that the blood of Jesus is common, that it only covers your sins to your next sin, do you really think you will escape God's judgment? Now, again, this is where, to me, the, um, I don't know what the phrase is or but this is where this is where to me that that next step that next level of grace steps in you know i mean a lot of people who think that god has only forgiven them till their next sin i mean a lot of people who believe that god will forgive them one day but until then it is what it is let me say this jesus is lord that's all you need to do to get into heaven yes jesus is lord but right here he's speaking to people who are going back and forth from jesus to something else and all of a sudden out of that he gives us this amazing truth don't count the blood of Jesus as a common thing. Don't think that the blood of Jesus is so weak that it could only save you from this, but it couldn't save you from the rest. Do you really think that the blood of Jesus is only good as good as everything else? Do you really think the blood of Jesus is only as powerful as, as, the, as that can of Lysol that you have at home? That the blood of Jesus is only as powerful as that, that bottle of, um, I don't know what it's called. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, <laughs> I mean, antiseptic, you know, whatever it is that, you know, I'm saying, do you really believe that the blood of Jesus is only as powerful as that cleaning solution that you have at home? I mean, come on. Do you really believe that the blood of Jesus is only as powerful as that? Because if you do, you're counting the blood of Jesus as a common thing. And yet the blood of Jesus is powerful enough in that same chapter to give you and your family eternal redemption. I'm telling you, if you are a believer if you said that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, do not fall for that trap that you are just like everyone else. You are not. I'm telling you, beloved, there is blood on your doorpost. There is blood over your house. There is blood over your family. There is blood on you. And that blood is crying out to God better things than the blood of Abel. It's crying out, my God, protect them. My God, death cannot come here. My heavenly father, give Matthew and his family more favor than they deserve. Give them unmerited favor. Be gracious to them. Protect them, even in the middle of this crazy storm that they're in. I'm telling you, the blood of Jesus cries out better things for you. Let me close with this. I know I've gone way over the time I wanted to go, but we're going to take communion and come back. Can get out communion in just a second. Look at this in Revelation. I apologize. 
We good? Look at this in Revelation chapter 12. And I'm going to close with this in verse 11. Fact, let me read this. Let me um seven down to eleven. Because I love context and I love the book of Revelation, which is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at this. Verse seven. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven. Now watch this. Satan is cast out of heaven. In that moment, um, in Isaiah, the prophet says this, speaking the messi messianic, um, messianic prophecy. I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. Anyways, it says this. There's a loud voice when he fell to the earth. Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. I tell people all the time, you know, you walk around with guilt, you walk around with guilt, but it's misplaced. The only one accusing you is not God to you. The one accusing you is not the Holy Spirit to you. The one accusing you of your sin is the devil. Right here, the accuser of our brethren. Talking about all of us. The one who is accusing us of our sin day and night. Reminding us of our failures. Reminding us of our mistakes. Reminding us of the time we gave into temptation. The accuser of our brethren that accused us day and night. Right? Watch this. And verse 11, and I'll close with this. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. One more time. How did they overcome? How do you overcome that guilt? How do you overcome that condemnation that says God shouldn't protect me because of the things I've done? That says God won't protect me because of the things I've done. The blood on the doorpost is not good enough, sweetheart. It's not enough. That blood, yes, thank you, Jesus, for the blood, but it's not good enough to save me. How do you overcome that feeling of guilt? How do you overcome that feeling of fear? How do you overcome the accuser that's accusing you day and night? Right here in verse 11, we overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. We'll talk about the word of our testimony another time, but the blood of the lamb, what does that mean? It means that the blood of Jesus removed all our sin. And because our sin is removed, know this, there is nothing that the dragon can spew at us. There is nothing that the world can throw at us. There is no virus on earth, in hell. There is no disease, no plague that can come on you and your families. If we had more time, I would have read Psalm 91 to you, but I won't. But I'm telling you that there is no evil that shall befall you. It won't even come near your dwelling place. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. I'm telling you, the Lord is protecting you and your family because the blood of Jesus covers you. And you would do well to believe in it, put your trust in it, but even when you waver, don't think, oh God, you know, I, I doubted for a moment. What's going to happen? I'm telling you, God is not responding to you. He's responding to the blood that's on your house. So with that said, I love you. I hope that you've been blessed. Let's take communion together. And let's get back to this awesome Friday night. And I do want to say thanks for sticking it out with me. Uh, <laughs> I did not mean to go 56 minutes, but I will say this. It's Bible study night. Um, so it's, it is what it is. I like to, I like to relax and just let it flow. And, uh, you know, we'll have some other people do a Bible study for us as well. We'll, uh, let them set up a webcam and just go to work. Uh, but this is Bible study night, uh, quarantine 
Bible study night. So let's let's take communion. If you have something to eat, let's go ahead and do that. I'll pray for it. You just hold it out in front of you. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to take the bread tonight. And uh, even as your word says, we discern this bread as your body, the body of Christ that was broken for us. We declare that by his stripes, we were healed. So Father, anyone that's struggling with any sickness, any disease, anything in their physical body tonight as we hold this bread, right now, Father, I declare that your wholeness, your perfect wholeness is beginning to manifest in their bodies even right now as they hold this bread, as they hold it. We declare again that by Jesus' stripes, we were healed. Not will be, but were healed. It's a past tense truth, a past tense revelation. And we're standing on the truth that declares we were healed. Father, in Psalm 91, you declared your truth will be our shield and buckler. So tonight we declare your truth is protecting us, that we are whole. And we thank you for it tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you would, go ahead and take the cup and just hold it out in front of you. Father, we thank you wherever your blood is, the blood of Jesus is, there can be no more death. So tonight as we drink this cup, we are declaring that you have been covering our homes. You've been covering our, our household wherever we find ourselves, whether it's at work or at home or in our car, in the grocery store, at the bank, wherever it is. Father, you have covered each and every one of us. Because your blood is on our doorposts. So tonight we stand on that truth. We stand on that reality. Believing that your blood is more than enough. Your blood is more than capable. And Father, your blood will always be more than what we could ever do in our own strength. So tonight, Father, we submit to the truth that your blood has set us free from every sin, every mistake, every fault, every temptation we gave into. Your blood has set us free and your blood has made us eternally righteous in you. So tonight as we drink this cup, we declare that your blood is here, the cup of the new covenant, every blessing, every ounce of protection, every little bit of favor that belongs to the righteous is finding its way to us even right now. And we receive it tonight in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for sticking it out with me. Like I said, this was a long one. Thanks for listening to Center Church Podcast. We trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to receive more of our content in the future, you can email us at centercharlotte@gmail.com, at gmail.com or just visit our website at centercharlotte.org. Thanks for tuning in and may God's grace cover you in every area of your life.